Back in 1980, well, in the mid-1980s somewhere, um, Time Magazine published an article by Carl Sagan. Is anybody familiar with who Carl Sagan was? An, an astronomer and uh, atheist. And he asserted that there were, there were two essential parameters for life to exist. That we had to have the right size star, and that the planet had to be the right distance from that star. Today, there are more than 200 parameters that are recognized and acknowledged as essential for life to exist. Not just exist, but to function. And that number keeps climbing. And it's, and it's gotten to such an extent that even the atheist scientists who have argued against creation are beginning to have second thoughts about their, um, their position. We're going to look at one of those parameters today. It's that thin layer of soil between the atmosphere and the mantle, or the crust of the earth, that is essential for life to exist, but not just to exist, to function and to fully function. And so I think it would be important for us to know something about that, don't you? So this is a basic class. When I teach soil fertility, it usually takes me anywhere from 10 to 12 hours to three days to teach this subject. So we are going to just look at it in a basic, basic way. What I'm hoping to do is to give you a platform or a frame of reference to use to evaluate the choices that you make in pursuit of, of working with your soil and improving it. You'll see that there's a lot of ideas out there, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. How do you evaluate any of those? How do you know what to do? There are a lot of visual cues that we go by that we, we assume indicate that a soil is good or a soil is not good. You know, if it's dark and it's, you know, kind of crumbly and a lot of different factors like that, we, we assume that that means that this is a really good soil. And it could be that there are things about that soil that are really good. But I've, I, I work all over the world. I've seen thousands of soil tests. I've seen thousands of different soils, and I can tell you that I've, I've seen soils like this that were awful. And I've seen soils that looked awful that were fantastic. <laughs> Having said that, I'll tell you that there are none righteous, <laughs> not one. I have never seen a soil test that was good, I mean, that was perfect, that was ideal or optimal. They all have their flaws, they all have their weaknesses and they have their strengths. And the key is to be able to know, okay, what should they be? What should they be? How do you decide that? Is it the fertilizer dealer that's going to tell you what they should, you know, what they should be? How about the compost maker? Or the, the chemical uh, salesman? Who's going to tell you? Is it going to be the conventional farmer? Is it going to be the organic farmer? Is it going to be the biodynamic farmer? the biological farmer, the permaculturist, uh, which one? So we're going we're gonna to go into this. We're going to look at some, like I said, we're going we're gonna to give you some framework. I can't give you all the detail that I would like to give you, but I want to give you some framework and some foundation because if you have no, if you have no point of reference, if you have no standard or, or, or means of measuring something, how do you know whether you've got it or you don't? And unfortunately, a lot of people go through life 
Um, just doing what somebody else does or guessing at it. I spend more time with growers helping them straighten messes out that they spent money to make. It's pitiful. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't have, you know, a whole lot of money just floating around that I don't know what to do with and I could just throw whatever. And so we need to use the means that we have to get the greatest benefit out of it. So, let's start here. Has anybody seen this pie chart before? That's considered the ideal soil. That's considered the model soil, and there's universal acceptance of that assertion. It's universal. It doesn't matter what school of thought you come from. And that ideal soil is what is represented there. The volume is made up for, you know, of about 45% mineral, about 5% organic matter, and then the other half is pore space. It's airspace. And of that half, about half of that space is filled with water and half of it's filled with air. When you look at that, do you, is there, does it invoke any questions? Let's go, to back to the, let's go back to the second chapter of Genesis. And what did God say when he created man? He formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his mouth, into his nostrils, the breath of life. Now, I look at that and I try to imagine in my mind God just saying, okay, just, just grab a little bit of this and grab a little bit of that and, and throw it together and breathe on it. You think that's what God did? You can read through the Bible and there's never, a, there's never an instance when God just randomly does anything. There is a pattern, a very specific pattern to everything because it's, what did we represent? We represented the image of God. And so there's a, there's a very definite makeup that that soil should have. So there is, this, there is a, a certain amount. And, and if we had the time to go in and look at each one of these m- m- nutrients, I could illustrate you know, and point out to you why it's, it's important you have the certain amounts that you do. And we're going to look at a couple of them uh, because they, they affect the science of this. We're going to look at a lot of chemistry, physics, and science today, but it might not sound like chemistry, physics, or science necessarily to you because that's what that is. Um, so there are very specific amounts of these nutrient elements that should be in the soil. Now, what's the dilemma with that? Okay, if that's the ideal soil, if I don't have that, how do I get it? I assure you nobody has it. Well, I take that back. There are a handful of people throughout the world who have, who have brought the condition of their soil to pretty tight onto that, that condition. Okay, soil test? How do you know the soil test would get you there? Just a note that uh, there is a there was a mainstream. It's actually the, the modeling that I use. The mainstream um, model. It used to be a mainstream model. It's been marginalized now because of uh, higher priorities. Um, and and. Labs, just, just to illustrate that having a soil analysis done doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hit that target because different labs run different analytical processes. And they come up with different numbers. Can you believe that? They can take the same soil and they can come up with different numbers. Well, it has to do with the type of extractants they're using, 
the amount of extractant to, to soil and the amount of shaking time and a few other parameters, they will determine what those numbers are. The real key is, do they have a model that they can measure? Do they have a demonstrated model or demonstrated model numbers that they can measure those analytics by to determine whether or not it's achieving this objective? And then the unfortunate reality is that most of them don't. They're trying to use a model that does not match the analytics and or they've just totally abandoned it and they just concern themselves with, with uh, um, fertilizing the crop. They're not really addressing the soil. And what I'm talking about here is, is feeding the soil and letting the soil feed the crop. And that means addressing the character, if you want to put it a different way. Addressing the character and then letting that character bear the fruit. You know, we want to, most, in most cases, people are just concerned about growing the crop and making sure they can get the crop. And there's a lot of hazards with that. But, you know, soil tests would get you going in the right direction and you'd start asking questions. But that would be the first one. Now, say you were in a freshman and you were taking soil science at college and you were a freshman and you were taking your first class and they brought this up because they're going to bring it up. Um, and so you wanted to know what I just asked and you raise your hand and you say, uh, so if somebody doesn't have that, how do we help them get it? What do you suppose the answer would be? Can you, can you believe that the answer is, by and large, still, we don't know how to do that? You're just stuck with what you have. Deal with it. We're going to explain, okay, how do you get half of that as air? What if I have less than, it, that, less than 50% of that space as air? What if I have more than 50% of that? Any of you guys have a sandy soil? Most sandy soils are going to have more than that in pore space. Most, I say. Some will not. They'll have less. How many people have a clay soil? Most of you guys are going to have less than that. Some of you will have that, and some of you might even have more than that. What makes the difference? Well, we're going to, we're, we're going to look at it a little bit here. We're going to look at some of, the, some, of the, um, some of the things that have to be considered in order to achieve that optimum soil. We're going to need to look at a few things that involve form. You know, what is that soil made up of? How is it functioning? And, and how is it expressing what it is? The question was, if you had a sandy soil, would you want to add more organic matter to it uh, to, to improve this, the soil structure and, and improve that condition? That's one possibility. I have growers, and if I feel like, if I sound like the devil's advocate sometimes, I'm just simply wanting to encourage you to think. Um, I have some growers who have sandy soil who added organic matter to it, and they messed up their chemistry. So sometimes, one of the things you need to remember is all these things are interacting with each other. And so it's important to look at the whole picture. It's very possible, a very possible outcome. Let me give an illustration here. I, had a, I was at a training, and there was a lady who works for a big uh, composting operation in the Midwest. And in between the class, she was asking me, could you get me any insights or you know, ideas on how to, to approach my clients so that I can sell more compost? And my answer shocked her. I said, yeah, I could give you some insight. I said, tell your grower when compost is not a good idea. She didn't like that answer. <laughs> there are times, folks, that compost is not a good idea. So we have to look a little, we, we want to start digging in here and start looking at 
the form, function, and expression of soil. And we're going to look at a few things here that will start fleshing this out. Okay, number one, parent material. How many of you came from parent material? <laughs> I hope all of you say yes. <laughs> How many of you are the source parent material? Soil is the same way. Soil originates from some parent material. I'm sure some of you have kids in here, and some of you are children, parents, I hope. Do they have similarities to you? Do you have similarities to your parents? And maybe your looks, and maybe their, your disposition, your propensities. We, do, we did foster care, medical foster care for 16 years. We've adopted four kids. And I can tell you for sure that they're very definite propensities and dispositions to people. Because the adopted kids we have do things and have attitudes and dispositions that are totally different than our biological kids. Well, soil is just like that. And what do I mean by that? If a soil originates, let's say, from uh, calcareous soil, we'll just pick, we'll start with calcareous soil. What do you suppose it's going to have a lot of? Now, calcareous soil is high in calcium. It, it's, it's a large amount of calcium. What mineral do you think it's going to have a lot of? Calcium. Um, what, if you, what if the parent material was, rock, was uh, granite? Now, you guys probably wouldn't know some of these things, but if it's high in granite, you're going to wind up with a lot of magnesium and potassium and probably not enough calcium. Um, the Dysingers, you guys all know the Dysingers. I do their soil fertility. They're on a rock phosphate or an apatite rock ore body. They have excessive levels of phosphate and calcium. I had an acid sandstone soil out in Colorado. It had a lot of iron, not much of anything else. And so we could go, we could go through this, and, I, and I'm going to try to keep this simple so I don't, you know, get things too complicated here, but there are, there are classifications of different soil types, and it depends on the type of material, the type of rock that they originated from, or whether they washed in, they blew in, um, and they have certain characteristics as a result of that. Well, the reality is, is those soils want to express what they are. They want to express what they are. So do you think that a soil that's high in phosphate and calcium is going to express itself as, and by the way, they're very deficient in potassium. Um, do you think that's going to express what grows there the same way that that soil that's high in calcium and, and deficient in a lot of the trace elements because there's so much calcium there? Do you think they will express the way things grow the same way? They won't. You'll have very specific plants that'll grow well in the one type of soil, and you'll have very specific plants that'll grow well in the other soils, and you'll have others that won't grow well at all because of that. And that soil can't do anything other than what it is without intervention. It can't do anything different than what it is. Now, there are some things that can be done, and we're going to talk about that later. There are interventions, and all of agriculture, by the way, is intervention, all of it. And I should point this out right here because there's a lot of idea out there that's, that's very incorrect. What do, you th what do you think of when you think of the term organic growth? 
But the term actually means, it, it actually defines the, the, the capacity or level that natural systems can function at without intervention. So in other words, if you were to look at a, a, at a, a forest or a prairie or, or a desert or whatever you looked at, it's, it's functioning at its organic growth level. In other words, it's functioning at the maximum level that it can function at. Now, this is the opposite of what you're told a lot. You're told that nature is evolving, that nature is advancing, and that things are improving. But, I, but that's just simply not the case when you, look at, when you look at it in reality. And I could ask the question, how many of you have seen any apple, or, apple orchards just popping, out of, popping up out of nowhere and originating, or strawberry fields, or, or um, vegetable gardens? just all of a sudden, you know, starting to manifest themselves. You don't see that, do you? If anything, you see things starting to get worse and, and having more and more problems, and that's the reality. So it's important to understand that nature is not holding anything back. It's restricted by the condition that it's in. But it's not got something it's holding back and saying, I'm just not going to let you have this because you're not being nice to me or whatever. Nature is always trying to preserve life. It is always trying to maintain life at the highest level it can and, and maintain stability. Now, if any of you have gardened for a, a long period of time or something, whenever we plant a garden in there, we're now changing the demand on that system. And it may be that that will work well for a while because we haven't exceeded the capacity of that system to maintain stability. But what happens all of a sudden, you know, I'm sure you people have had this happen to you, what happens when you have a big, long stretch of cloudy, cloudy, rainy weather. Or you have a big, long stretch of hot, dry weather. And all of a sudden, you start having problems, disease problems, pest problems, things like that. That's because you exceeded the capacity of that system to maintain stability. The stresses from the environment have, have put are, are to such a degree that they've exceeded what that system can maintain as stable and you've been having problems. So now, we're going to be talking about soil here, but I should point out, since I mentioned that, that there are two parts to a growing system. You have the soil system, and you have the environmental influences. And the environmental influences, you never know, I mean, you know to a certain degree, depending on where you live, but you never know what to expect from it. Has anybody been hailed out? I have. Has anybody been flooded out? I have. Has everybody, anybody been wiped out by disease? I have. Hurricane, wiped it out. Locusts. There is a much bigger pool of effects in the environment than in your soil system. But the only thing you have complete control over, like you, we have control over our own character and our choices we're going to make, embrace, the only thing you have control over is that soil and what you're going to do with it. Because it's that soil that's going to be able to give you the greatest amount of stability and the greatest amount of buffering against these things. I mean, how many people have had people, things in your life happen that totally altered it? You didn't plan for, you didn't, you didn't ask for stuff that happens. You didn't have any say in it, you didn't have any control over it. Um, but the best you can do is, is just order your own life in a way that can endure the highest degree of, of that I call it insults. <laughs> because, um, 
So you have, when, when the professor says, well, you just have what you have, he's correct in one respect, is you have the soil that you have. Now, I've had people ask me, can I just dig it all up and take it away and bring some more in? I said, yeah, sure, it's a lot of work. I said, but you just exchange one set of problems for another set of problems. The simple solution is to address the problems you have. And if you have a good model to measure it against, you can address those conditions and, and bring them to a better condition so that they're more functional. Okay, if anybody has any questions along the way, feel free to ask them, um, but just be sure that I repeat the question for the recording. Okay, so another thing you have, we're just going to start looking at some of the aspects of soil. One of the things you have to look at is the texture. And this goes back to the parent material. And texture just tells you, um, texture is just telling you what size mineral material or what size rock or whatever term you want to put on it, you, what's the makeup? What percentage of these different sizes of, of material your soil is made up of? And those three materials are sand, silt, and clay. And this is just a, a diagram giving you a relative comparison to their size. Now, if you go to the clay part down there, you see it's quite a bit smaller. Um, when we get to it, when we start looking at colloidal capacity, the stuff that actually holds fertility is way smaller than that. Way, way smaller than that. It's the tiniest fraction of the clay and it has, you can't even see it unless under a microscope. So that's texture. It's just telling you, you know, how much clay you have, how much sand you have, how much silt you have. And that's what you have. Okay? Now we need to look at structure. Structure is you take that sand, silt, and clay, and you build it into a house. And this is more important than necessarily what, whether, how much sand, silt, and clay you have. And I know the people with sandy soils, you know, think, well, it's really hard to grow anything here because it, it dries out too fast and it's not really fertile. And people with the clay think, it's, oh, this is too heavy and it stays wet and, and it doesn't grow very well. But structure is more important than texture. And that's, um, that's how those are put together. And that's actually how you get the pore space, that air space in your soil. It's how this material is put together in the soil to, to, build, that, to build that structure. Now how does it do that? How do you put it together? How does it get built and put together? Okay, well, that's the next thing here, colloidal capacity. In the soil, there, uh, there is um, that clay that I told you about, which is a very fine, fine, fine crystalline material. It has a charge to it. It has a net negative charge to it. Humus, that organic matter that's in the stable, stabilized form, the stable humus, is also colloidal in that it has the charge to it. And it's primarily a negative charge as well. Now, both of them have some positive charge in them, but primarily it's, it's a negative charge. So how do you think that that build structure in your soil. pH? Well, how do you, would two, would two negative charges attract to each other? No, they wouldn't, right? So what do you have to do to get them to come together? 
Yep, you got to have something with a positive between them, right? Okay. Yeah, well, it would, it would attract, they would come together and be attracted to each other. Um, both this, the, the modeling that I was talking about, and, it, and it's, almost, it's a, what almost every lab uses to run their analytics, but they use a totally different process, analytical process, and they don't come up with reliable numbers, but it's called cation exchange capacity. When I talk about colloidal capacity, I'm talking about what's called cation exchange capacity. The term cation just means it's positively charged. Okay? All of your major, your major cations, uh, your, your major cations are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. Calcium and magnesium have a double plus charge. They have two plus charges available. And potassium and sodium have single plus charges. There, there are, and these are all alkaline forming, and they're nutritive. You have acid forming cations too. Uh, hydrogen and aluminum uh, are a couple of those. Iron as well. Um, and the trace elements, a lot of the trace metals are positively charged as well. But these four major uh, cations, these four major elements, are the ones that influence the structure of that soil. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have heard that you put organic matter on and the biology breaks it down and they create lots of glues and that glues everything together and that structures the soil. Well, that is true. It does do that. And they do, it does contribute to the structure of the soil. But the lion's share of structuring to the soil is done by chemistry. It's not done by biology. It's done by chemistry. And so, it's actually, if you, you and, uh, well, I'll do that one. I'm going to go to this slide down here. So, I only put two of them on here. We'll talk about potassium and sodium, but I didn't put, I didn't put um, all four of them on here. How do, these, how do these mineral elements structure the soil? Well, I did some drawings, and I'm not a real good artist, so forgive me if, for the quality of those drawings. But calcium and magnesium are the dominant two elements that structure the soil. And calcium structures it by flocculating the soil colloids. That's, those, that's that clay. Now, clay, the clay colloids are like plates. They're flat. Does everybody get that picture? Like the drawing here? They're flat. You know, they're not nice squares or rectangles or anything, but they're flat plates. And calcium has two plus charges. And the way it, the electrochemical attraction binds them together, pulls them together like you see on the left here. It'll be either take those two plates and attach them edge to edge, or it'll take those plates and it'll attach them face to edge. Magnesium flocculates the soil colloids. That means just brings them together. But oh, the calcium increases pore space, and we'll, we'll look at this in a second and see why. When magnesium brings it together, it decreases pore space. Because it takes those two plates, those two clay plates, and it puts them face to face. Can you see, if you look at that diagram, can you see if you stacked a bunch of plates all up attached by magnesium, how much pore space would you have? Not a whole lot. But if you had it attached like this over here, how much pore space would you have? You'd have quite a bit more. Now, you don't want all magnesium, you don't want all calcium. 
when we talk about that pore space, there's a very specific size of pore space that you want, whether it's a sandy soil. Sandy soil, you, your pores are too big, and you need to tighten it up. You need to make them smaller. In a clay soil, they're too small, and you need to make them bigger. But you want a very specific pore space. And I don't know if you saw in there that next criteria was ORP, or, which is oxidation reduction potential. The reason you want a very specific pore size is because that gives you, uh, and let me just throw this in here. How many of people have heard it said that you, you want aerobic soil? You want your soil to be aerobic. Anybody heard that? That's not exactly true. You might consider me a heretic before I get done here today. Actually, it's more biblical. The soil needs to be able to breathe. It needs to be able to exchange air, and soils do breathe. You know, biogravity, gravity, you know, the, the lunar gravity and tidal, tidal uh, movement. Water actually moves up and down in the soil. And you get air exchange, and you get, you get water movement in the soil. If that porosity is right, and that, that pore size affects another thing called capillarity. And capillarity is simply the, the, the pore sizes are such a size that water can actually travel along the outsides of those, pore, those particles, those, those aggregates, and they can work their way through the soil. They're not trapped anywhere, and they can freely move. But when that pore space is a right, certain size, too, you also have some areas that are um, full of water. And in those areas, those areas are anaerobic. Now, why would you want anaerobic spots in your soil? Because you've probably all been taught that anaerobic organisms are terrible. But did you know that nitrogen fixation in the soil requires an anaerobic environment? There are a whole bunch of what they call facultative anaerobes that contribute to the fertility of the soil. And you want a condition in the soil that facilitates the function of those organisms. Now, it is true that you, you want it predominantly uh, aerobic. But you more importantly want it to be able to breathe. You want the pore space to be the right size, that you get maximum air exchange and maximum water mobility in the soil. Now, um, I'm not going to go back to that slide. You all remember seeing that ORP. That's oxidation reduction potential. So it's the ability to oxidize minerals and it's the ability to reduce minerals in the soil. Reducing the minerals in the soil is what makes them available. Oxidizing them is usually what ties them up. And so you want a slightly reducing environment in your soil. And that breathability, that pore space again, is what contributes to keep maintaining a slightly reducing environment in your soil. If you've got too much air in that soil, then it tends to reduce that and get more oxidation. If you've got too little air in there, then you have too much reducing going on, and you can have problems as a result of that. So it all comes back to that soil being structured the right way. And the, the dominant factor in structuring is chemistry. It's not organic matter, although organic matter contributes to it. But it, people overemphasize the organic matter, and it, it, while it's contributing to it, it's not, it's not the dominant structuring factor in the soil. It's chemistry. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I, I don't have time to go over the model that I use. But the model that I use, based on the model I use, uh, well, there's another term we need to know here, base saturation percent. 
base saturation percent. What that simply is is telling you, okay, uh, when we talked about cation exchange capacity or the capacity of that soil, the charge capacity of that soil, just picture it as a bucket. A bucket? Yeah, a five-gallon bucket, a one-gallon bucket. Uh, we haven't talked about it. another aspect we will talk about. Exchange capacity basically tells you how much fertility your soil can hold. Okay, so in essence, it's, it's how big of a bucket your soil has. How much fertility can it hold? Some people's soils have a five-gallon bucket. Some people have a two-gallon bucket. Some people have a half-a-gallon bucket. It's kind of like the parable of the talents. You know, one person had one talent, one had two, one had five. The one who had one wasn't expected to do what the one had five was. But it's important to know what the capacity of that soil is. People get themselves into more trouble not knowing. What if you, what if you had a one-gallon capacity soil and you put five gallons worth of fertilizer on or soil amendments? What do you think would happen? Well, you throw an awful lot of stuff out of whack and you waste an awful lot of money. Now, this is one of the things you have to be careful about uh, that I have to share with you, too. There's, you'll, you'll see two terms. You'll see one is total exchange capacity and you'll see one is cation exchange capacity. Most labs only run a partial cation exchange capacity. In other words, they only measure calcium, magnesium, and potassium. They don't measure sodium, and I don't know why. Um, and they don't measure the other bases and they, don't factor, they factor in hydrogen, but they don't always measure the other bases. The problem with that is they're not telling you how big the bucket actually is. Because they didn't measure the whole bucket. You want a total exchange capacity, which would measure calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, all the other minor bases, and, and hydrogen. Because that'll tell you what the actual bucket size is, the real bucket size is, capacity. And it is very important you know what that capacity is, because it's, it's a... It, it only causes a loss, loss and headaches when you don't know what that is. What if you have a, let's do the other, what if you have a five-gallon bucket and you only put one gallon worth of amendments on? Well, it's, the soil's just not going to do what it could do, and it's in and it, um, potential, but it's also not going to perform very well because there are percentages, remember I said there's a base saturation percent, there are percentages of material that are involved, not just pounds. And so if you, don't, if you don't have the right percentage of those materials, you're not going to get this structuring, and you're not going to get the right, the right condition in that cell. Yeah. So, so base saturation percent, is what, what that is actually measuring is actually saying what percentage of your bucket is full of this element and this element and this element. It's primarily those four major cations that it's talking about. We'll look at what are called anions, which are sulfur and phosphorus and nitrogen, um, we'll look at that just in just a minute, but this is how these nutritive elements are held in the soil. So, base saturation just tells you what percentage of your bucket is full of each one of those. Now, your bucket might not be full. You might only have 40% of your bucket or 60% of your bucket full. And you might have 60% or 100% of your bucket full, but it's full of the wrong stuff. Because there has to be the right percentage, the right proportion of these nutrient elements in order for them to function both in their structural capacity but in their nutritive capacity as well. And so with the modeling that I use and the one that has demonstrated itself worldwide, the only one it has, you want at least 60 to 70% of that bucket to be full of calcium. You want anywhere between 10 and 20% of the bucket to be full of magnesium. And you want about 3 to 7% of that bucket to be full of potassium. 
In general, the average soil, the average soil is going to be more in the 68-12 range with calcium and magnesium, and 5 to 7 with potassium. And that's order to get, if that's in order, that, you can see that calcium is the dominant element in that bucket. And that's because in order to get the right structure in that soil, that's about where you need to be. And the, the range on that is simply as a result of the exchange capacity of that soil. So the light, sandier soils that have a lower capacity are going to need more magnesium to hold them together. So you're going to be closer to the 20% and less calcium. And heavier soils are going to need a little more calcium and a little bit less magnesium to, to get the structuring that you need on that. And then sodium, and when I mention sodium, people say, well, sodium kills stuff, doesn't it? In the soil. <laughs> you actually want about 1% to 3%. It's, it's actually a half percent up to 3%, but optimum would be about 1% sodium in the soil. I actually know of a fellow up in Minnesota, which is very deficient in sodium, who was told to, to put a rock salt on and hit I had to put so sodium on, and so he got rock salt to apply it, and the state flipped out because he brought a whole semi load of rock salt because he had a couple thousand acres he needed to apply it to. And, uh, but he was growing barley. Barley uses a lot of sodium, and once he put that, that sodium on, which he was deficient in, once he put that rock salt on, it, um, it dramatically increases barley yields because it needed the sodium. And if you grow beets, um, Swiss chard, any of the goosefoot family all require extra sodium to do well. So, now I'm just mentioning a couple things here, but each plant family pulls heavier on different things. And so, you've heard all the time people say, well, you need a pH of this, and you need a pH of that, or you need a lot of this and a lot of that. Well, what you need is actually a banquet table that is complete and balanced made available in a condition it's accessible to your crop, and then the crop will pull what it needs. It will take what it needs. Now, if you grow the same crop over and over this every year in the same place, then it's going to pull heavier on certain nutrients, and you're going to have to be mindful of replenishing those nutrients to keep the balance that you're trying to keep there on it. Okay, so have I lost everybody yet? Okay, so are you getting a little bit of a picture of what you should what you should be looking for. Yes. Yes. Now I haven't I haven't. So you're gonna have when somebody comes and says, oh well this will work great. How many have heard of the back to Eden back to Eden method? Do you all think it works great? No. <laughs> I know people it worked fantastic for, and I know people it was a disaster. How many people have been told to put compost on? Can't put enough compost on. I know people it has helped tremendously, and I know people it has been a total disaster. You have to know what your condition is to know what your need is. I had somebody tell me one time, well, do I have to pull a soil test? You're close enough to me. This was in Kentucky. You're close enough to me. And this was a you know, highly educated, highly successful person who was telling me this, and now I'm just a farmer. Um, and he said, can I just use, do what you're doing? Because we're pretty close by, and, and uh, you know, I don't see the need to spend money on a although he had plenty of it, um, on a soil test. And I said, uh, yeah, okay, if you'll agree to one thing, if you'll agree that, in, that your spiritual condition is, is identical to mine in every particular, I'll tell you. And he said, well, 
I don't think that's true. And I said, well, I'm not telling you. I was trying to help him to see that his condition is going to be different than mine. It's the model that matters. We all, a lot of times we try to be, we compare ourselves among ourselves. And then we try to match some other person. And, and sometimes that works out because we kind of have a similar disposition. Sometimes it doesn't work out too well because, you know, we don't. And so we, you know, it's having Christ as our model to measure against, not somebody else. And then we go from where we are and what our need is, and we, we, we fill that need, not what somebody else's need is. And so that's, that's important to, to recognize. Now, let me, let me just jump on the, the, what are called the anions. They're the, the negatively charged nutrients. The negatively charged nutrients are primarily held, and that's nitrogen, phosphorus, um, sulfur, uh, are primarily held in organic matter. There are charge sites that are positive on these, on these colloidal clays, but there are both positive and negative charge sites in, in colloidal humus. And so the majority of those nutrients are held there. Phosphorus is held uh, by, by bonding. And so when you put phosphorus on, that's why people put a lot of compost on, get themselves into trouble with phosphorus. It's got a triple negative charge. When you put it on, it's going to stay where you put it, unless it washes away with, with the soil or blows away with the soil. And you'll have to grow it out. And, want, and nobody, nobody knows how to get the excess out if you get too much of it. But nitrogen and sulfur will leach out. They'll leach away. So if they don't get built into humus, or if they don't get built into microbes or plants, whatever's there, and if you have rainfall going through there, it's going to leach out. And it doesn't go by itself. It takes something with it. And it usually takes a cation, calcium, magnesium, potassium. It typically takes calcium with it and, de- and depletes your calcium. So I hope I gave you just a little bit of a, a framework to work from. Your soil has a capacity. It's designed a certain way. You need to know what that capacity is, and then you need to know what that capacity needs to be filled with. What is it filled with, and what does it need to be filled with, and what do I need to do to bring it to the place that it needs to be? How does pH affect um, the crop that you're growing? Well, the simple answer to that is that when you develop, when you, you fill your bucket in the right balance and fully fill it, the pH always lands between six and six and a half. pH is only relevant, it only tells you how much hydrogen you have in your soil. It doesn't tell you, and if you have a low pH, you're missing alkaline cations. If you have a high pH, you have too many alkaline cations. And so what's more important is that your soil is complete and balanced. And the palm tree and the grapevine and all kinds of other plants will grow fantastic in a balanced soil. Now, you mentioned climate. The other factor is climate. You're not going to grow bananas in Alaska unless you have um, you know, some, some way to modify the climate. So it has to be able to handle the, the climatic influences, you know, the temperatures and those type of things. But um, as far as the soil goes, pH is only relevant because it, it's telling you that you're missing something or you've got too much of something. But then you have to go and find out, what am I missing or what, am I, what do I have too much of? So I don't, I don't personally, I only pay attention to pH because it, to tell me that I've got to figure out what's missing or what I have too much of and what I've got to work down and get out. You can have a high pH and you begin missing stuff. You have too much of one thing, you're missing other stuff. You can have a low pH and have enough of some things and not enough of others. Or too much. Sodium, we bring up just real quick. Sodium... Uh, affects pH four, almost four and a half times more than calcium does. 
So you could have just a little, a little bit too much sodium and your pH look great, but your mineral balance is terrible and things won't grow well. Balance, balance is the key word. And to know what that balance should be and then learn how to make, to, to um, supply that balance to your soil and maintain it. You have to maintain it. Remember I talked about the parent material. You know, the parent material wants to express itself. And if you don't die daily and if you don't continue to impart the right condition to that soil, it will migrate back to the disposition it has and the way it wants to express itself. People are that way too. And we didn't get to it, but there, you know, then once you're going to, you're going to intervene, you have to ask the question, am I opposing growth on this system or am I imparting growth to this system? And that's a, that's a big factor because a lot of agriculture is, impo is impositional. It's imposing on that system. It's decreasing the capacity of life rather than imparting to that condition and increasing the capacity of life. And our mission is to increase life, to be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. That's our objective. And so we want to be sure that that's what we're doing. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.